I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so here's the agenda today for this video. Um, The question is, does the book of Acts teach us that followers of Jesus should all be obeying the law of Moses? That's the question. I'm going to do an honest, straightforward survey of the whole book of Acts in this video. There are just too many verses taken out of context in this discussion, this debate, about whether or not all believers in Jesus should be following the law of Moses. There's just way too much verses out of context. So you need the context. I need to give you the context and that's going to take time. So I, I, I quote now Paul the Apostle in Acts 26.3 when he said, Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. <laughs> that's, that's my request. And uh, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I do this um, live stream. I actually produce a couple videos a week helping people to learn to think biblically about everything. Um, you can subscribe if you're new to the channel. But I guess probably first let me, uh, let me give you some content that is worthwhile before I even ask for you to do something like that. Um, So this is a continuation of my series, Evaluating the Hebrew Roots Movement. If you've never heard of them, um, it's 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 a very varied group of people. But one thing that kind of ties the movement together is this idea that everybody's supposed to be obeying the law of Moses, right? Dietary restrictions, Sabbath observance, feast days, and all sorts of other various rules that we see uh, that God gave to the the people uh, of Israel in the Old Testament. So, more specifically, that's what I'm evaluating. The idea that followers of Jesus are supposed to be followers of the law of Moses. There's a link in the description below to the series that this is part of. And as I continue teaching, I'll keep adding to that same playlist. Um, And so I have two videos I've already done, and you can check those out. Uh, My method in this series is, is basically it goes like this. Look, there's a ton of stuff in the Bible on this topic of obedience to the law of Moses and what its purpose was and all that. So I've decided to take things chronologically. What I did was I actually started with the teachings of Jesus, and then now we're moving to the teachings in, of the, in the book of Acts, and then next we'll talk about the epistles. So as we build them in order, we're, we're getting the teaching in the same order in which the church got the teaching from the Holy Spirit. It helps us have a better, more rounded understanding, comprehension of the theology related to how Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So... Um, If Jesus, here's an idea we're approaching the book of Acts with today. If Jesus wants us to obey the law of Moses, I expect a couple things. I expect for him to have teachings that clearly extend the law to non-Jewish believers. We talked about that last week. He didn't, um, but it's, it's complicated though, and it definitely segues us to the second thing I expect. The second thing I expect is for the book of Acts, the book of Acts to demonstrate that the apostles taught obedience to the law of Moses to non-Jewish believers. So that means dietary restrictions, feast gatherings, sacrifices for, for sin, um, temple sacrifices, because the temple was still standing during this time in Acts. Um, the Sabbath observance, the uh, seven-year Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath that they have, the Jubilee, the releasing of servants every seven years, that kind of thing. I expect them to be teaching this to non-Jewish believers because they're fulfilling the command of Jesus to go into all the world and teach them to observe and to do all that Jesus had commanded them. So that's the second thing. The third thing, and we'll be analyzing that today. The third thing I'd expect is I expect for Paul the Apostle, because he's the Apostle, quote, to the Gentiles, right? For him to make clear that those Gentiles are supposed to obey the law of Moses, even just for sanctification, even if it's not for salvation. So we'll, we'll talk about that. We, then we might even do a couple more videos because I'm thinking about doing a survey through Hebrews on this topic because it has profound theological 
things in there that we need to talk about. And maybe I'll do a video on random objections, things I failed to cover in previous videos, and then we'll move on to some other topics, thinking biblically about everything. So today, though, we're focused on number two. Does the book of Acts demonstrate that the apostles taught obedience to the law of Moses to non-Jewish believers? And so I want you to think about the following two questions as we survey the book of Acts, not studying the whole book in its entirety, but studying this topic throughout the book. Question one, did the apostles ever feel the need to stop obeying the law of Moses themselves, right? They were all Jewish. Did they feel the need to stop obeying the law of Moses? Should they have stopped it? Like as a way of saying, see, we're not under the law anymore. So they quit observing the law. Second question, when Gentiles who did not have the law prior to finding out about Jesus, when they came to Jesus, were they then taught to obey the law, even if it was only as an act of obedience, only as like a sanctification thing, not a salvation thing? That's the second question. These are two very different questions and not asking these questions is the biggest mistake I think people make when they're looking at the book of Acts to figure out what it teaches us about Torah observance. So Acts does treat these people differently. Um, so we're going to start right now. We're going to start in Acts chapter one and we'll start in chapter one, verse eight. Now, prior to Acts, we have to know this going in. By the way, if you have questions, you can put them in the comments right now in the live chat. Um, you can you can you just put a capital Q there for your question. We'll try to gather those and I'll answer as many as I can. This will probably be a longer than normal live stream. I'm warning my mods. If you have to bail, I understand. Um, but I I don't want to I don't want to separate this teaching into multiple videos because the stuff you desperately need will be towards the end of the video to get the full picture. So I, I just have to put it in one big teaching. If you don't like long teachings, well, then you're probably not going to be a fan of my YouTube content because um, you can go watch a three-hour movie instead. <laughs> I don't want to have Bible teaching for an hour and a half. That's okay. I understand. You are a wimp. Um, so we're going to survey through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1. You can put your questions in. I'll answer as many as I can. And we're moving forward. Here we go. Verse 8. Jesus says to his apostles in the beginning of Acts. Now, prior to this, Jesus' ministry. Oh, this is... I lost my train of thought. Jesus' ministry was focused on the Jewish people prior to this moment in the book of Acts. His ministry was focused entirely on Jewish people. I made that clear in the last video in this series. He went to the Jews. He isolated himself towards that. It was only the exception of the rule when he, he blessed like the Syrophoenician women, that kind of thing. Um, so in Acts 1.8, though, they're told this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Those are Jew Jewish context in Samaria. That's a unique Jewish-ish, Jewish-ish context. I'll get into that in a minute or in 20 minutes. And even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus is saying this is going to be this sort of progression. The gospel will go out progressively. And we see this in Acts. And you'll see it today clearly that the gospel goes out step by step by step into new people groups. But it takes years before the question of Gentiles observing the law even comes to mind in the early church years. So that's the first problem people don't recognize when they're looking at the the, the book of Acts. So this is generally seen, like I said, as progressive, this uh, verse. Oh, I should put it on your screen, Acts 1.8. I'm going to show you the scriptures. I want you to be able to see them for yourself and think it through with me biblically. Um, so uh, you see the progression. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then remotest parts of the earth. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we have um, a moment where there is a just fantastic abundance of people. 3,000 people are added to the church. What many people don't realize is these are Jewish people or proselytes. They're not Gentile converts. 
That's not the, that's not Gentiles coming to Jesus. Rather, they're people, every one of them, it seems, who are already observing the law of Moses. So the question of do we now teach them to observe the law, it never comes up in Acts 2. Let me read some scripture to support this. Um, Acts 2, 5, it talks about the context. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were gathered for Pentecost. It was a feast day. And that's who gathered. The Jews, they were, they were devout men. That, that's the focus, the emphasis. It's on them. In Acts 2, verses 9 and 10, it says that those who were listening, when the giving of the Holy Spirit happens in Acts 2, I'm going to act like you know something of Acts, and this isn't totally new to you here. Um, so when the giving of the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, those who are present listening to the, the, the people speaking in tongues, they're Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and it goes on, right? But then it summarizes who they are in, at the end of verse 10, both Jews and proselytes. So there's two categories of people from all these locations. They're either Jews or they're proselytes, which means that they were non-Jews who became Jewish they took the law of Moses upon themselves before they ever came to Jesus, right? This is not related to the gospel at all. They were proselytes. Therefore, right, them coming to faith in Jesus, here's a big point in Acts 2, it didn't cause them to take on Mosaic law. That's my whole point here. They didn't take on Mosaic law as a result of following Jesus. Nope, they were already doing it. So still, though, the emphasis in Acts 2 and the emphasis in the early church at this point, at the very beginning here on the day of Pentecost, is going to be, the Jews in particular. So we get this in Acts 2.46. Um, it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That's the idea that they're, they're gathering in the temple. They're still Jewish. They didn't like, this is really important we realize, they didn't like go, hey, we accept Jesus, therefore we reject the temple, we reject the law. Nor did they say, hey, you accept Jesus, now you have to obey the law, now you have to attend the temple. This is just what they were already doing. So um, the other verse I want to show you in Acts chapter 2 is Acts 2.36. When Peter's addressing this crowd of people from various places, it shows you that he's talking to Jews, not Gentiles, when he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's clearly talking to a Jewish audience here. Acts 2, 3,000 people added to the church, yet the church is still Jewish. That's the emphasis so far. So uh, follow along with me now. We're going to work our way through the, the book of Acts. We go to Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Something I'll point out. Peter and John, just as we found out in the last uh, chapter, they were still attending the temple on a regular basis. Here they are. They're going at the hour of prayer. And that's a moment when a sacrifice was happening in the temple. Peter and John didn't seem to have any problem with the idea of a sacrifice happening in the temple. Okay, this is where the Hebrew Roots people are going to be like, Mike, right on, preach it, brother. Because here's where some people go, they get off. They're just not observing what we read. Like they were participating in the continued um, institutions set up by the Mosaic Law. They're, con they're continu continuing to participate in these things. They didn't reject the temple. They didn't oppose continued sacrifices there. And you might say, Mike, what about the book of Hebrews? We will come to that probably in a, in a couple weeks. I'll do the book of Hebrews. It needs its own treatment, but we need to get Acts first. We need to understand that. So um, they come at that time of prayer. This is during the evening sacrifice, the hour of prayer. And a crippled man, he gets healed, right? This crippled man gets healed and it draws a crowd. And Peter starts preaching a big, a second big gospel message that lots of people will get saved because this crippled man is healed and it draws attention. They're all excited. They want to they know how this happened, right? 
So when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, men of Israel, he says. So who's, they're in, the, in Solomon's portico, right? They're in the temple. They're the people of Israel. So it's Jews to Jews. That's the evangelism. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk? Then he gives a very Jewish outreach message. One thing you'll see in the book of Acts is when the outreach finally goes to the Gentiles, they don't even talk this way, right? To the Jews, they kind of present Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. To the Gentiles, they present him as Lord. Um, they always preach his death and resurrection, but the way they connect it to uh, the Old Testament is slightly different, slightly different. There's just variations there. We'll get to that in a few years, actually. Well, still today, but years later in the, in the timeline of the early church. Um, so he refers to them as the ones here who asked for Barabbas um, to be released in, as we read through Peter's preachment in the book of Acts chapter 3. He says that they had asked for this, this murderer to be released instead of, um, here it is in verse 13, instead of Jesus. So he's talking to Jews. It's just abundantly clear the audience is still Jewish. That's, that's my main point here. In verse 14, he calls them his brethren, which would have been, um, I think that's in verse 14, no, verse 17. There it is. Verse, let me see, seven? Yeah, there's seven. I was looking at 16, saying 17. So there, and now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. So again, as your rulers, he's speaking of the rulers of the Jews here, did as well. Um, In verses 25 through 26, we see this is still Jewish context. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you, first, God raised up his servant, that would be Jesus. By the way, that's a huge messianic title, my servant. I got to do a whole study on that phrase, my servant, one day. It's really neat. Um, And he sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So, so... This is clearly Jewish. This is the context is fully Jewish here. Uh, the result of this is that the church grows to about five thousand people, all Jewish, or the occasional Gentile who had before coming to Christ proselytized, become circumcised, became under the law of Moses of their own free will. So the issue of do we obey the law? It just seems to be you keep doing what you were already doing. That seems to be what's going on in the early church, and I, I can make this case stronger as we keep going through Acts. Um, So in the rest of chapter four, they get in trouble with Jewish leadership. They're threatened and commanded to stop talking about Jesus. But the entire context of Acts chapter four is Jewish. It doesn't have anything else for us really, as far as today's study goes. Not that I noticed as I was studying through. Um, In Acts chapter five, we get this in verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, which is a section of the temple. They're gathering regularly at this area of the temple where normal teaching would take place. So there's, it's just extremely Jewish. It's in, in fact, it's entirely Jewish, the early church right now. It's totally Jewish. If someone was like, are we going to keep observing the law? The automatic answer is yes at this point, right? Now, there's more to be revealed. God is progressively revealing things. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would continue to guide them in all truth, and they're going to be learning more and more as they go. But right now, there is no abandonment of the law in that sense. Not that I see in the text. I don't think it's, we're justified in saying that. It seems that the opposite is just assumed. You just continue in what we've always done, you know. In verse 17 through 82, which I won't read because that's a huge section. Acts is a long book. Um, 
But in this, starting in verse 17, they're arrested by the Sadducees. They're released by an angel and they preach where? They go to the temple and they preach again in the temple. It's still Jewish focus. There may be Gentiles in the area, but they're not focusing on them at all. It's all about the Jews. Then the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council comes and has some debate over what to do with the apostles. And you need all this context so you can follow the logic when we get to Acts 15, which is the pivotal passage in this debate about the law and the Gentile. In Acts 5.34, it says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up and claiming to be somebody. A group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this... After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even find, um, you may even be found fighting against God. So then they take his advice and they, 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 they still flog the disciples and they threaten them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But they kind of do like a wait and see thing. Let's just wait and see what happens with this Jew. It's a Jewish movement, though. That's the point. It's entirely Jewish. That's the context of, um, of Gamaliel speaking, of the Sanhedrin being involved. But after being beaten, they just continue, right? Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. That's the idea. By the way, if you want to get your own Bible Thinker mug, <laughs> there's a link in the description below the video. You can check that out. Um, and uh, yes, so in Acts chapter 6, um, there's a dispute that arises with the Hellenists. Okay, this is a change in the early church because prior it's super duper Jewish, right? Here it's still Jewish, but there's a group called the Hellenists that get brought in, but they're not Gentiles. They're Greek-speaking Jews. Now that word takes some work to understand but if you read the commentaries on it and read the scholarly thoughts on it there's pretty much agreement that in chapter 6 verse 1 the context is their hell that's why nasb translates it hellenistic jews they're greek-speaking jews that's what it means um, and then the native hebrews are those who had not given up the hebrew language they had not given up as many of the hebrew customs um, that they had so they're still like torah observant they're just not they're just considered a little a little lesser because they don't have the language down. Um, so the issue in ch chapter 6, verse 1, is now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the issue here is they're being overlooked. They're just not being cared for in the daily serving of food. Um, they had kind of a communal living going on at the time, something like that. And so we, we know that, again, these are Hellenistic Jews because also everybody who's in the church so far is all Jews. That's the idea. Um, so they choose seven men, all with Greek names, probably probably Hellenists themselves, um, one of whom is a proselyte. And he's mentioned in verse five. There it is. And that's uh, Nicholas. He's a proselyte. But the, the emphasis of the rest of them obviously are not. They're all just Jews. One of them was actually a proselyte from Antioch. Um, so it's still a very Jewish church. And all this is happening is still in Jerusalem. And then here in Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, specifically Jerusalem. 
and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So Jerusalem's the hub of the church. And there may be, you know, obviously there's probably things going on elsewhere, but Jerusalem's the center of the church. And the church is populated by Jews. So much so that debates and issues are being are, are being hashed out between the, the the less or the more Jewish Jews and the more Greekish Jews. You know, that's like the discussions that are going on there. Um then there's the Stephen controversy, and that happens in Acts 6, verse 10. And we learn a little bit from this. I'll just read a few verses, and then we'll see what are we learning from this now, still fairly early in the church church's lifetime. Um, Stephen is one of these guys who is um, preaching Jesus. He's disputing with the, the non-believing Jews. He's a believing Jew, and he uh, he's challenged by them. They actually accuse him of going against the law or the temple. Right? And so that's what happens in this passage. Now, here's the first time something specific about the law of Moses pops up. So we're going to pay attention to it. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and scribes, and they came up to him and dragging, dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forth false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we've heard him say this, Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all uh, who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So he's going to give his defense in a second. But he's accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. But it seems obvious from the passage, he's not actually doing that. Um, because they had to induce men to say it, because the, the witnesses who claim it are clearly in verse 13 called false witnesses. So Stephen is not an example of an early church guy saying the temple's evil and the law it needs to be abolished or destroyed or something like that. He's not an example of that. He's being lied about. He may have said something like what Jesus said when he talks about how the, the temple would be destroyed and they try to twist it into, into him saying that he was going to destroy the temple, like, you know, liars gotta lie kind of thing. Um... So, yeah, he may have just repeated the words of Jesus. He may have rejected tradition. This happened a lot in the early church. They reject tradition, the pharisaical additions to the, to the law of Moses. And then they're, they're treated like they're rejecting the actual law itself. That happened as well. Um, so that, that may be the case. But it seems that they're just continuing to do what they were already doing. They're observing the law. They continue to observe the law. Um, but they reject the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus spoke of. So Acts 7, Stephen gives his really long response, and I, I don't have the time to read it. It's, it's amazing. It's a great Bible study of the Old Testament, actually, if you read through it carefully and thoughtfully. Um, I only want to mention, though, that um, uh, that they didn't keep the law and misunderstood the meaning of the temple is kind of one of the points that he makes. He makes to the Jews, like, you guys received the law at the hand of angels, but you didn't keep it. You guys don't understand the meaning of the temple, so he describes God, and he does deal with the law in the temple. But it's, it's not a question of abolish or not abolish. It's a question of what do these things really mean in the first place? And that's kind of what we got at last week. If we want to say um, the law of Moses is either abolished or not abolished, we all have to answer it's not abolished. But if we want to ask, well, then what is it? We say, well, it's fulfilled. And that's what he starts to get at. But still, we're going to learn a lot more as time goes by because it's still a Jewish church and we haven't even dealt with the issue of when the uh, Gentiles come in. So in Acts chapter one, 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with him, with putting him to death. This is when they decide to kill Stephen because of his preaching. 
Um, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there they go. This is a big change. This is a huge change in the church. Chapter 8 is a pivotal point for the early church. It was Jerusalem-centric, and all of a sudden now, persecution begins and people scatter. There's nothing wrong with running from persecution. We just don't recant our faith. We don't betray Christ. We always keep preaching, but you can dodge bullets. (laughs) That's appropriate. And um, so they take off, you know, and they start sharing Christ in other places. We actually get this um, from a couple verses in in Acts 8.4. We get Philip in particular, who he goes down to Samaria. Uh, Therefore, those who've been, been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, you might be thinking... Um, okay, so now the Gentiles are coming in, right? Like chapter eight, that's it. Now the Gentiles are coming in because they go to, they go all over the place preaching. But we find out later from Acts eleven nineteen that that's not the case. That's not the case. In Acts eleven nineteen, it tells us what those guys did. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. So they still thought, this is to the Jews. And, and they're right, it's to the Jews first, but it's just not only to the Jews. So they primarily focused on just preaching to the Jews. There was a rare exceptions, uh, and that's in verse 20 of chapter 11. We'll get to that when we get there. But uh, for now, just know that, that it's still, the emphasis is still Jews. So that means that um, that we're, we're, we're seeing Acts 1-8 take place. It's going to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So in order, Jerusalem has now happened. Now the persecution arises, so they go out to Judea, these various cities preaching just specifically focused on Jews. And then Samaria, and that's what we get in Acts 8.5. Philip goes down to Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So remember Acts 1.8, it's now being fulfilled in order. The next one will be the Gentiles. But first, we need to talk about this. The Samaritans, who are these guys, these Samaritans? Um, Well, they're (laughs) Jewish-ish. They're considered, they were considered by the Jews at the time, nearly Gentile. Like they're, these are almost Gentiles because they had a lot of issues, but they still were in this particular area. The, the ones that were being preached out were preached to were, um, were still Jewish. Um, um, in uh, Act and Introduction, an introduction and Commentary, uh, published by uh, InterVarsity Press, it says about this, these following people, the Samaritans, it says, his preaching about the Messiah would certainly have aroused at least the interest of his hearers, Philip's preaching. Since the expectation of the coming and of a future deliverer known as the Ta'ib or restorer was a firm part of Samaritan theology. His expectation, this expectation was based on Deuteronomy 18.15 and the expected person had more the character of a teacher and giver of the law than a ruler. Deuteronomy 18.15 is in the law of Moses and it's where uh, Moses says, hey, there will, God will raise up another prophet like, un, like unto me. There'll be a prophet like Moses. And they're waiting for the prophet like Moses. The weird thing about the Samaritans, though, is while they observed the law, they had the law. They only had the five books of the law. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. And they specifically rejected Jerusalem worship. And we get this in Jesus' conversation with this, with this Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The debate about the proper worship of God. So this is still like the Jews are being reached out, but but the Samaritans are listed last. It's Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, because they're like they're like halfway between Jew and Gentile. But here this is glorious. They're being brought into the church. So um, here's a side note: uh, the Holy Spirit didn't fall on any of them when Philip preached. They received Christ, 
Holy Spirit didn't follow them until Peter and John came from Jerusalem and laid hands on them. After that, they preached the gospel to more people in Samaria. So finally, at that point in Acts chapter 8, uh, in one of the verses over here, um, we have, uh, you can read it on your screen there. Um, they lay hands on them. We have the apostles finally stepping out of Jerusalem. And then they, they sort of open the gospel to the Samaritans, these sort of Jewish-ish group of people, kind of almost halfway between Jew and Gentile in the eyes of the, um, the Jews in Jerusalem. So then we have Philip again after this. So, so the gospel's going out. Now, if nothing comes up about obedience to the law of Moses, the topic doesn't come up. So we have nothing to learn yet. But it's important that we build this groundwork and understand the book of Acts. Then we have um, the, uh, the evangelist, Philip. He's later actually called the evangelist. He goes and he talks to an Ethiopian um, who seems to either be Jewish or a proselyte to Judaism before he finds out about Christ. He was coming to Jerusalem to worship. He has a copy of the book of Isaiah. Either way, while this is an expansion of the gospel to more people, still with a Jewish focus, um, the law of Moses is not brought up. In uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 40, uh, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and uh, as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So he's now just going around. He's Philip the Evangelist. He's going all over. He stays in Caesarea. He actually lives there, raises his daughters there. We've learned more about him in other places. Um, so, yes, but nothing really about the law of Moses. In particular, we're not hearing that those who are already observing it are told to stop. That doesn't happen. That's important that we realize this. In the early church, there were times, even, even recently, where people would say to a, a Jewish person, oh, you've come to Messiah? Well, then eat some pork or some other um, really foolish thing. And that's not the case. That's not biblical. That is, um, that is about as divisive as you could possibly be. In Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of and calling of Saul. Saul, Paul, this guy who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And you know the story, so I'm just going to go to verse 15. Notice this in verse 15. It says, uh, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul's specifically going to outreach to Gentiles. This will become really the focus of his ministry and his epistles are directed towards Gentiles and deal specifically with the issue of the law of Moses. But we're going to wait to come to that. First, let's show the early church history in Acts. Um, but he doesn't go to the Gentiles right away. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, it says, And immediately after being saved, right, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. That would be the Jewish gatherings, the regular weekly gatherings on the Sabbath. Um, in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not... He who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name, on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them um, bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So his, his ministry is focused on the Jews at the moment. It, he will become the apostle of the Gentiles primarily in the future. So Paul then, he travels to Jerusalem. And in verse 29, he focuses there on ministering to Jews, in particular Hellenists. And he was talking, now he's in Jerusalem, and he's talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. There just really aren't Gentiles that are part of the church in any significant number at this point, right? So here he's speaking to these Hellenistic Jews, um, and he's debating with them and discussing with them about the truth of Christ. And they, of course, try to kill him. With Paul, it's, it's revival or riot. <laughs> That's what you get with him. Um, so we get a summary of the state of the church in Acts 9.31. 
years in, we're, we're, we're a few years into the church now, but it's still all Jewish. That's what it says in 931. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. It continued to increase. So far, here's some principles we can draw. I think I can, I can lay these things out, right? The progression has, we've got uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We've got those. Um, we don't yet have all the world. That would include the Gentiles. That's coming very soon. But this, those who were already observing the law of Moses, they simply continued to observe it. That seems to be what's assumed in the text. This goes against those later developments trying to demand that Jews stop obeying the law of Moses. That's, that's not, doesn't seem biblical here. I would expect specific teaching. If you want Jews to stop obeying the law of Moses, I want specific teaching that says you better stop that. You better not do that anymore. That's what I want to hear. And I don't, at least so far in Acts, I don't see that. Just like if I want Gentiles to start obeying the law, I expect specific teaching that says so. Okay, in Acts chapter 10, finally, here we are, what are we, uh, we're like 20, 30 minutes in, we, we get to some Gentiles. Okay, Acts chapter 10, um, let me just skip there. We have the vision of Cornelius, and we have the experience of um, Peter reaching out to Gentiles in particular, non-Jewish Gentiles, Gentiles who are not proselytes, they're not observing the law of Moses. And Cornelius is the first guy. And this, I have to spend a little more time on because it's one of our key passages. There's really two key passages. It's here in, in chapter 15. So Acts 10, 1 and 2, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now you might think that that makes him Jewish. Um, no, it means that he, he believes something's true about Jew, Judaism and about the God of Israel. And so he's giving honor to God, but he's not considered Jewish. And that becomes abundantly clear in Acts uh, chapter 10. He's not a proselyte. Uh, Craig Keener in his IVP uh, Bible background commentary of the New Testament, which is a really, really good, interesting resource, by the way, if you're, you guys are looking for a... A, 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 new, a whole New Testament commentary that will add nice historical insights and data. Uh, that'd be Craig Keener's IVP Bible background commentary. Um, doesn't help as much with interpretation of things, but it's really good with just adding these historical details you might not know. He says, uh, Cornelius is clearly not yet a full convert to Judaism, but his almsgiving and the appreciation of the Jews who know him, in verse 22, testify to his devotion. Although the term God-fearer had a broader usage, it generally functions technically in Acts and in some other Jewish sources for righteous Gentiles who had not been circumcised. Josephus, Philo, inscriptions, and even the pagan philosopher Epictetus mention this class of incomplete converts. Inscriptions indicate a high level of religious interest among many of the soldiers. So they're traveling around. They find out about Israel and they believe there's something true about this. He's, he's praying to God, the God of Israel. He's almsgiving, but he's not, he's not Jewish, not circumcised, um, not, not under the law. So he, he sees an angel, Cornelius' vision. I'm not going to read through it all, but he sees an angel. And the angel tells him, go, Cornelius, and send for Simon, whose name is Peter. And he's in Joppa and he's going to come and he's going to talk to you about uh, the truth that you need to know. Um, it's important because what happens with Cornelius isn't just about him. 
and his family. This this moment with this one guy, Cornelius, and his family and friends, it's the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time in the book of Acts for years into the early church. Now the Gentiles can be saved. Now they could be saved, right? But now we're going to see it officially happen. That's the idea. So God prepares Peter for this. And here we get to our controversial passage. Is this vision telling us that it's okay now to eat unclean foods? That's the question, and it's, it's the wrong question, I'll tell you right, right now. The question should be, what is this vision about? Um, and we'll talk about it here. So Acts 10, verse 9 through 16. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So God asks him to eat food that is either common or unclean or both, it, probably both. There's, there's one uh, Hebrew roots guy who tries to say that common means one special meaning and unclean means something else. And Peter's un- common means, you know, clean food that like, it, you know, uh, say a, a goat that touched a pig and now the goat's considered common, but he's okay, you can eat it. It's just a pharisaical rule you need to reject. That is, that is a horrible uh, interpretation of the passage. Uh, it's clear that he's, God is saying all of these things are now clean. That's just... I mean, that's just the plain interpretation. But, but, um, there's more to it than that. So, uh, Peter refuses. He perhaps thinks this is a test. Maybe he's, he's being tested in his faith or something. Who knows? Uh, but God indicates that it's okay because God has called these animals clean, all of them, and Peter shouldn't call them unclean. So don't call it unclean. Um, so the point, Peter didn't violate food laws. This is an important point. This is exactly what the Hebrew roots guys are going to tell you. And they're right. Peter did not violate food laws even years after the resurrection. I've already stated this though, right? And we should, but we should know it. There was no requirement for Jews to stop following the law of Moses after they came to Jesus. This is not some kind of requirement. We don't, we just don't see it in the early church. And it might confuse you, but that's because you don't have a careful theology about what Jesus did when he fulfilled the law. But we're going to build that over these next few weeks. At least that's my intention. That's my hope. Um, But to the best of my ability. So there's a problem with this, though. The Hebrew roots people, they will imply that this means every follower of Jesus is supposed to obey the the dietary restrictions. But these are different categories of people, the Jew and the Gentile. And you're going to say, oh, but we're all one in Christ. Well, I'll get there when I get to Paul. For now, let's just look at Acts. These are different categories of people, and they're handled different by the early church, and they're handled different in the book of Acts. Um, So apparently, apparently, you would say, well, now all food is clean. That's what the vision means. Case closed. All food's clean. Everything changes after Acts 10. But... No, that's not exactly it. No, um, because look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who'd been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house appeared at the gate. Peter himself is like, I don't really know what this means. I mean, I get, okay, you're saying don't call unclean what you've called clean. Is this about food? What is this about? Well, in Acts 10.28, we get the answer. Peter, he ends up uh, staying, having the men stay with him. Then he goes with them to see Cornelius. He, he, and he goes to preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. And he says to them in verse 28, You yourselves know how it's 
how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So we now get the interpretation of the vision. Don't call any man unholy or unclean. And this is where everybody starts picking sides um, <laughs> on this on this verse. Um, does it mean that, that um, oh, no, no, uh, the people are not unclean, um, but the food is still unclean and it's unclean for all of, of all of the followers of Jesus? That, that would seem to be a reckless interpretation of the passage. Does it mean, oh, all people, all food is clean and therefore Jews have to reject the law of Moses? No, that would be a very reckless interpretation of the passage. It does, it does lay the groundwork for what we get continued revelation on later on. So I wouldn't hang it all on this one passage, but it does lay the groundwork for this idea that the Gentiles, they are not unclean in the context of them receiving the gospel. They've been cleansed by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. They've been cleansed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then now they're not unclean. Now to a Jewish mindset, what made the Gentiles unclean? Well, the food they're eating, the practices they have that are not according to the law of Moses. So this is going to be a puzzle that continues to be explained in a greater way. But here in Acts 10, the emphasis is, and this is where we, sh we should stop our emphasis for now, they're not unclean in regards to the gospel. You do not need the law of Moses to be saved. So... The major Hebrew Roots Movement points on Acts 10 is that Peter's vision doesn't mean unclean foods are clean. That's their major, major point. But that, that skips the meaning of the vision. The, the vision is not about that. The vision is about the Gentiles. They'll say, um, a couple reasons why they'll use, things they'll use to support their points. They'll say, for one, it wasn't about food, but about Gentiles, which I agree. But, but we have to acknowledge that the one thing, one of the things that made the Gentiles unclean was food. So there is a connection here. And then the, another point they'll make is that it's only in regards to salvation, not sanctification. And I will say, um, it's just not clear, okay? It, it's clearly about salvation. It's not clear how this applies to sanctification yet. It's through the rest of the interpretation of Acts and the epistles that we're going to get the answer to this question. Um, so, let me give you one interesting verse, though, as we move forward. Um, we're building our case slowly here. I don't want to overstep the text itself. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. The reason why I'm highlighting Acts 11.1 1 is this. In the Hebrew Roots movement, they'll say that you haven't received the word of God fully, you haven't truly received it, unless you're being brought into obedience to the law of Moses. Right? You're rejecting, according to the 119 video I, I critiqued originally, you're rejecting part of Jesus if you reject the law of Moses or if you're not, if you're not, they, they call it rejecting. We're just not under it. I'm not, I accept it. I'm just not under it. So I don't observe it. Um, but it's entirely clear here that these Gentiles are not currently observing the Torah. That's the whole reason why there's a debate in Acts 11 on the issue of what just happened when they got saved uh, without being under the law of Moses. No circumcision, none of that. That's entirely clear here. So if you're going to say that hearing the word of God, receiving the word of God means receiving the law of Moses, then you're just not using biblical categories for the phrase word of God. That's my point. And I think that's an important point. Um, I have some other ones to make as well. Gentiles were not unclean as a result of eating food that was unclean. Think about it, right? That's clearly what I think that's the application of the vision. Uh, Gentiles can be saved without concern for their observance of dietary laws. That's also very clear. Yet the law is a whole. The law is this whole thing. So you're not just taking dietary laws, apply those and ignore the rest. So 
If the law of Moses doesn't prepare them for salvation, the gospel alone makes them clean without consideration of their diet. They're saved without uh, in any need for the law of Moses. This is this is a separate point from sanctification, but it's it's hugely important because you get the gospel wrong, you get you get the most important thing in the world wrong. Um, so is God though saying all foods are clean? You can build a case for this. It'll be progressive. I'll just throw out Mark seven nineteen real quick because it's something I want us to be aware of. I didn't mention it last week. Um, you can study this passage on your own, but Jesus here says um, that foods, what food defiles you or doesn't defile you and all this, he then describes it as um, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And that boy, there's a whole world of debate on that, on that verse. I'm going to take that verse with a bunch of stuff from Acts and the epistles later on. And we'll see that I think there's a consistent revelation progressively being revealed from the teaching of Jesus all the way to the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul and the book of Hebrews, that um, not that we're rejecting the law, but that in its fulfillment in Christ, all foods are now clean. But I'll get there as we get there. So we'll go back to Acts now. I don't want to overstep our, um, our orderly evaluation of the book. Let's see here. Um, the alternative view, by the way, it seems odd. The alternative view seems really odd. Because um, the alternative view would be something like, God used the idea that all foods are clean to communicate something to Peter, but we should make sure to know that all foods are not clean. Like, that seems weird, doesn't it? So it, it seems like you're pushing a little much on the passage if you declare F, F, from Acts 10, clearly all food is not clean. But it also seems you shouldn't say, clearly all food is not, all food is still unclean, because look at the vision. So we just log it in our mind and we wait for more information so we can get the full revelation of what God's showing us. Finally, I'll say what's missing from this. In Acts 10 and 11, there's a debate over the Gentiles coming to Christ. And I'll just mention, they never say they should come to circumcision. They never say anything about them being educated in the law of Moses. It never comes up. So now we are here. Acts has established that those who don't follow the law of Moses can become followers of Jesus and we see the shift to the Gentiles in the outreach of the church happening in, um, I guess I'll back up a bit, in Acts eleven nineteen. Now that we know the Gentiles are officially in by the grace of Christ, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution, I read this earlier, uh, that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But, here's the exception, there were some of them, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, this may have started happening earlier, but Luke waits to tell us till now because first he wants to tell us how the Gentiles can be saved apart from the law. So now he's going to talk about how God's been using, uh, God's been preaching, basically saving the Gentiles and how the church has been growing in the Gentile world. Verse 20, or verse 20. One, excuse me. And the hand of the Lord, we continue learning about this, this. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began encouraging them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, you need, to, you need to remember this. For a year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Because now they're being exposed to the Greek world. And the Greek world starts calling them Christians. So they're disciples. 
They're officially called disciples and they've been met with for over a year. And this is in the city of Antioch. This is so important that we learn this because Acts 15, the whole debate takes place in Antioch or at least about Antioch. Um, So here's a thought. If we are supposed to follow the law of Moses for sanctification purposes, not even salvation ones, that was answered in Acts 10. But if it's just for sanctification, surely after a year of being discipled by Barnabas and Saul, Paul, right? They're going to be following it by then. It's a year later. Remember, remember this because it becomes important in Acts 15. Okay, now Acts chapter 12 isn't really relevant to today's discussion. Um, there's the martyrdom of James and Peter's imprisonment and deliverance and Herod's death and Saul's, it's following the travels of Saul at this whole time. But it's really in Acts 13 when we start having more data that helps us out in our current survey. Now there were at Antioch, back at Antioch, same Antioch, in the church um, that, that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch of Saul. So here we are, we're in Antioch, and not only they've been for a year that they've been there, and they've had Paul and Barnabas discipling them, but there's also teachers and prophets. So if there's you know, if there's any expectation for these non, non-Jewish non converts to Christianity to start obeying the law, they've got to have been heard it by now, right? Right? Like, how much do you have to drop the ball to not tell people after a year of discipleship there's the that there's the entire law of Moses that you're supposed to obey, even just for sanctification? Remember this. Um, so... Paul and Barnabas, after this, they're sent off and they go evangelizing in various towns. They, they leave Antioch. They're being set apart for the work to which God has called them. And they, they, they go, time goes by. Who knows? I don't know exactly how much time. So time goes by and uh, this, this is significant um, because there's still teachers in Antioch. They're still growing in Christ, but just Paul and Barnabas aren't there. In Acts 13, verse 14, it says, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went down into the synagogue and sat down. Now in Acts 13, 14, it's a different Antioch. We're not dealing with the same Antioch anymore. This is a whole different place. So don't get confused um, about this. It's really easy to do that. There's multiple cities. That's why it's called Pisidian Antioch. It's up in the north. It's a different location. Um, So uh, Paul preaches in the synagogues. This was his standard behavior. He'd start in the synagogues, and clearly he presents Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. There's a somewhat relevant section here in his preaching in verse uh, 38 and 39. Paul says to them, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren. Now he says that because they're they're Jewish people, not because they're followers of Jesus. That through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now you might be thinking, that means we're not under the law. Well, it's consistent with the fact that we're not under the law. But it's more specifically, I think, talking about sin. He's just saying here, um, there's sins which could not be forgiven from the law of Moses, and they are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Um, So more teaching will come on that later. This is a continuous revelation of the glories of being in Christ and um, somewhat relevant to what we're discussing today. So there's another thing to kind of throw into your thinker. All right, Acts 13.42. Um, And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, this is after the preaching of Paul in Acts 13. He's in Antioch in Pisidia. He's like, hey, uh, they're like, hey, come back next week, next Sabbath, and teach us these things again. So verse 43, now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue 
in the grace of God. But then, then here's what happens. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now it's beyond Jews. And the Jews, are, some of them, were upset, jealous. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Blaspheming Christ, ultimately. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth? It's the order to the Jew first and the Gentile. That's just consistent through lots of the books of the, of the Bible. So it was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So now he's like, we'll just go to the Gentiles. I got no problem with that. And so the animosity levels up. And in the book of Acts, the persecution of Jews against the, uh, not every Jew, right? Because still most of the church is Jewish, or at least a huge portion of it. But of the unbelieving Jews who are rejecting Christ, Messiah, their, their persecution of the believers just levels up big time after this. They even follow Paul town to town to ridicule and attack and stir up uh, controversy against him. Um, so then we get to Acts chapter 14. We're still following Paul. Um, and then he goes to Iconium. In Iconium, uh, evangelism now has kind of this like normal pattern. He starts in the synagogue, uh, preach, but then afterwards he'll preach to the whole city. So he'll start in the synagogue of the Jews to the Jew first, and then he'll go to the whole town. He's preaching to the Gentiles. Never does he mention proselytizing people to, to make them you know, come under the law of Moses. He just gives them the gospel. That's the idea. Just the gospel. Just get saved. Turn your life to Christ. He, he never, never once does it mention them being under the law of Moses. I mean, there's got to be one place in Acts that says, hey, Gentiles, the whole law of Moses, you're supposed to obey it. I need to see that. I need to see that if, if, if I'm going to be saying that Acts teaches that. Then in verses 8 through 11, it's, it, Paul goes to Lystra or Lystra. And, he's, and it says, a man was, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he'd fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And, um, and he leapt up and began to walk. So the guy gets up and walks. This is kind of like Peter. He heals that man at the temple and it leads to a bunch of people getting saved that day, except this is not in the temple. As we read the context, we see this is not in the temple, right? Verse 11, when the crowds saw that Paul had done what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become men like men and have come down to us. And so now they're trying to undo the idolatry and the paganism and the polytheism of these guys and lead them to Jesus. And that becomes the task of evangelizing the, the, uh, the pagans of the time. doesn't give them the law, though. Um, yeah, now, um, let's see. I have more, but I, I, I want to move forward. we got so much to cover. We're almost there to Acts 15. Um, I will say this, though. Some would say, but Mike, when he preaches against idolatry, idolatry is preached against in the law of Moses. And I would say, yes, it is in the law of Moses, but it isn't the law of Moses. Like, it's not as a whole being put upon these people. Because idolatry is against, God's against idolatry for those who did and didn't have the law in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a, it's a blanket thing. You can't just read between the lines like that, right? What specific law of Moses stuff that's only in the law where Gentiles were not required to be accountable for it? What kind of stuff like that do we have that they're being called to do? Um, the Sabbath was a big deal. Tithing to Levites, which they could still do at the time. He never tells them to tithe to the Levites. He never tells them to go to Israel for their, or to Jerusalem for the, uh, for the feast days. Like, why doesn't he tell them to do these things? He doesn't tell them about clothing, beards, dietary laws, any of that kind of stuff. 
So then they return. They return. Um, and that we get in verse 21 through 23. Um, after they had preached the gospel, Paul and Barnabas, to that city and have made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord to whom they had, in whom they had believed. This church is so advanced in discipleship that elders were appointed from within their own ranks. Elders. They've had multiple visits from Paul. He's on his second journey, missionary journey to them. Advanced discipleship with no mention of Torah observance. Then they get back to the Antioch that we want to focus on for a little while. From there, they sailed to Antioch. This is the one where Paul was there for a year um, and, uh, and teachers and prophets were there. From there, they sailed to Antioch from which they had been uh, committed to the grace of God for the work they had, which they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the, the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. <laughs> you get they were with them for a year. Time goes by for two trips, two missionary trips. Now they're back in Antioch and they stay there for a long time. Plenty of time to tell them about the law of Moses. They're not new believers. The people in Antioch are not new believers. And that one fact will absolutely destroy what I've seen as the common interpretation in the Hebrew Roots movement of Acts chapter 15. So let's go to Acts 15. This, this is like probably the, the most key passage in the book. Verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Where did they come down to? Antioch. And they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Why? Because these, 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 these guys, these, these guys lying, these liars from Jerusalem, they say, we're from Jerusalem, we represent the apostles. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, that's a false gospel. That's wrong. They're not under the law. They don't have to observe it to be saved. And we'll get into whether they have to observe it even for sanctification purposes in a minute. Um, so they, they, they go against them, but then the church is like, well, go back to the apostles and find out what they say. Go confirm it with them, which will end up being a really positive thing. In fact, this is the first church council that you could say. It was like they gather together to talk about doctrinal and, uh, and fellowship issues, and they gather in Jerusalem. So the apostles, they have that ability to open and close and declare these things in the name of Christ. And we're finally going to get it. Now that the door's been opened to the Gentiles, massive Gentiles been saved, Jewish persecutions come in against them. And now the question arises, are Gentiles supposed to obey the law of Moses? either for salvation or sanctification, Acts 15 answers both. You realize now why it wasn't answered in Acts chapter 1 or in Matthew chapter 7, right? Because it wasn't an issue then. Now it's an issue. Now it gets answered. So I'm going to read verse 3 through 22 because this is the whole council. I'll give you the Hebrew roots points in Acts 15 and then I'm going to respond to those points and what I think is the, uh, the correct interpretation in my opinion. And you can weigh it and think about it. Acts chapter 15, verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, 
and this is important, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. They don't say why it's necessary. They just say it is. So the initial thing in Antioch, you better do it to get saved. Now an additional thing gets brought up. It's just necessary. You just need to do it. Um, maybe they'd say for salvation. Maybe not. It's not clear here. It just seems to say it's necessary. Verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, remember Acts 10 and his vision? That's how he answers half this question. He says, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. That's Cornelius, right? And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put to, te to the test, put God to the test? Why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That would be the, that yoke of the law. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. That answers the salvation issue, doesn't it? Specifically, the salvation issue. How does it relate to sanctification? It's not clear just yet. It seems to be implied to me, but it's not clear. Let's keep reading. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. And here comes the decision that they're making. Simeon, which is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, with the words of the prophets, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So the Gentiles, that's kind of his emphasis is that in this sort of future rebuilding, God's going to be bringing the Gentiles in as well, calling them by his own name. Um, verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Let's not trouble them. That's interesting. Let's not trouble them. Is he talking about salvation here or something else? Verse 20, he says, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. That would be one thing. From fornication. There's another. From what is strangled and from blood. He gives four things and they're going to write to them to say, hey, abstain from these things. And he gives a reason. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preached, preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So Moses has been read in the synagogues all over the place. In synagogues in every city. So that's the reason why we're going to give him this, this command. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And then they send out a letter we'll get to in a minute. Um, so here's the points of the Hebrew Roots movement that I've heard make in their videos. Um, they say, hey, this is, this is only about salvation. This is only about salvation. You can't relate this issue to, to sanctification in any way whatsoever. Acts 15, only salvation. Those are the only options, right? In fact, this is what um, I think it's uh, Unlearn the Lies. Lex, who seems like a really great guy, by the way, but I think that his interpretation here is, is wrong, and I think that we should talk about it openly. Um, he says that there's only a couple options. Uh, either you, you have to say the law saves, or you have to say the law doesn't save, but you don't get to say 
whether or not you're supposed to obey it for the sake of sanctification because they're not allowed to talk about that in this in this chapter and that doesn't seem to be the case though um in fact the meeting seems to cover both issues first rejecting the salvation question second addressing the sanctification question and i'm going to give you a few reasons why i think that that's the case one thing um it never says this is only about salvation, not about sanctification, right? In fact, verse 5 seems to bring in the, ne- the necessity without reference to salvation. Acts 15, 5, I'll show you that too. I wouldn't rest my argument on this, but I think it's significant. These are Pharisees who are believers, and they stand up saying they should be circumcised and they should observe the law of Moses. And that's understandable why they think they should. If they're going to be following our Messiah, they should be following the laws. Um, so it just seems to be, a, it's, it's required. It's required, but not necessarily for salvation, just required of you. You're not supposed to do it. So that's one reason. Number two, they would have been expected to clarify if this is to be commanded later. If later on the Gentiles are going to be told, at some point we want you to follow the law, why on earth does Acts 15 not make that clear? I mean, clearly the Gentiles who've been in Christ for years, they've never been circumcised. They're not obeying the law of Moses. That much is clear from the whole, there, there'd be no debate if they had been. Um, why don't they, why don't they say something positive about obeying the law of Moses? Problem number three, they did give instructions for the, for the sake of discipling. I don't know what that is. It's like when you ride a bike backwards. Um, they did give instructions for the sake of discipling or for sanctification, but, um, they didn't give them the law of Moses. They gave them these four instructions, not the whole law. They didn't just say, learn the law and do it. They said, here's four instructions. I want you to do these things and you will do well if you do them. So let's look at those four instructions. It's in verses 20 and 21. We write to them, they what? Abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled and from blood. Those are the four things. These are all like in Leviticus 17 and 18, among a list of things that God judges Gentiles for. This is significant. That God judges Gentile nations for violating uh, some of the things that we have in Leviticus 17 and 18 in particular. Um, it may be, though, that it's being given as a requirement for fellowship. Hey, we have Jews, we have Gentiles, we're part of the same body of Christ. Tell the Gentiles that we want them to make sure that they abstain from what, what some would call table fellowship. In fact, this is a lot of commentaries agree with this. I'll, I'll just read one to you. This is from uh, John Polhill in his New American Commentary on Acts. He says, They are in the Old Testament, um, these, these four commands, and have been required of Gentiles associating with Jews from the earliest times. James' remarks could also be taken in another sense, though, which would fit the context well. There are Jews in every city who cherish the Torah. Gentile Christians should be sensitive to their scruples and not give them offense in these ritual matters, for they too may be reached with the gospel. And so in Israel, Leviticus 17, 18, there's for even the Gentiles participating in the nation of Israel, they're expected to do certain things, even though they're not under the law itself. And they're being, they're like, Hey, do these minimal things. Why? Because verse 21, Moses has been read in every city. So one interpretation is just that. In fact, let me give you again, the two options in case I lost anybody there in the mix. One option, these four commands are in the Torah, right? But it's not Torah observance because they're only being told to observe four commands, not the whole law of Moses. This eliminates the idea that Gentiles are under the Torah in any sense like the Jews. Even if it's for all people for all time, these four commands, then it would imply that eating pork is actually okay. Just don't strangle it or eat its blood. That would be the application if you just take make it universal. Um, the, other, the other statement is 
the other option, second option, is that it's just for the sake of fellowship. Um, I, I think it's more likely this one. Maybe there's maybe there's truth to both of those those comments, like both of those ideas. But I see it this one because James' comment about um, what Jews is about what Jews know, not what Gentiles know. Acts fifteen twenty one, right? This is the reason for the command because Moses has been read in the synagogues forever, right? We've been reading we've been reading Moses in every city. We have those who preach him in the synagogues. In the synagogues, this is a Jewish gathering. Jew, Jews and proselytes would be gathering there. So we want you Gentiles to observe these four rules for the sake of those who've been listening to the law of Moses every generation forever. So this seems to be a table fellowship. The idea is that Jews and Gentiles aren't all under the law, but Gentiles can take on some of these things to have fellowship. Uh, th- this is, again, for the strangled and blood issues. I think that idolatry and fornication are um, are something that simply the, the Gentiles are known for. So they highlight that and say, make sure you're not doing these things. Um, the final Hebrew roots response in Acts 15 is to say, Mike, this was just temporary. And this is what I've seen in multiple videos from Hebrew roots movements. They say this was temporary. Um, the Gentiles were supposed to obey the law of Moses, but Acts 15 is just getting them ready. Like they're not ready to obey the law of Moses yet. They just came to Christ. Let's not burden them too much. Um, after a while, we'll of course teach them the law of Moses because we have to. But this ignores Acts, the book Acts, right? When starting in chapter 13, we find out that these people in Antioch have been being discipled for years, years. And they had Paul and Barnabas with them for a straight year, other teachers and prophets with them in the intermittent time when Paul and Barnabas were traveling. Then Paul was with them again for a long time. And then he disputed right there in their midst with these other guys. So we're just making stuff up to pretend that there's some secret teaching that they're going to obey the law of Moses, but that's not the case. In Acts 15, 22 through 29, we get the actual letter itself. Let's read through it. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Here's your apostolic letter from them, to, from the apostles to the Gentiles. Since we've heard that some of our own number uh, to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, so now they're invoking the Holy Spirit here. Um, this is This is a divinely inspired thing. And to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That's the command, right? James, hey, let's not, he says, let's not burden them with the yoke of the law. Let's only burden them with these four things. These four things aren't for salvation. They're for sanctification. They're for sanctification. So my question for the Hebrew roots people would be this. Uh, by the way, I love you guys. You're my brothers and sisters. We're just trying to understand these things biblically. Be biblically minded. Um, you love the law. I, I do too. And I, I, and I see the excitement and the joy in uh, observing these things as unto the Lord. The question is, what does the scripture tell us about it, right? So here we are. The question I have for people in the Hebrew Roots Movement, uh, particularly like 119 Ministries, my, my brothers, I'd ask you this. If Matthew 5 and Matthew 28, we talked about last week, 
If that means that the law of Moses is supposed to be preached to the Gentiles, why is it that it never comes up in the book of Acts? It's, 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 it's nowhere. Not just in Acts 15. It doesn't come up here. When, when the issue is being addressed, they never say, and over time learn to obey the law. Like, why doesn't it say this? It seems that you've misunderstood the command of Jesus to preach his teachings to the whole world. And you've combined two verses out of context to create a teaching that is not actually biblical, although it has the zeal of the Lord behind it. But it's just not accurate, I think. So why then? Next question. Why in Acts chapter 16 does Timothy get circumcised? We're not done with our survey in Acts, but I'm going to move pretty quick at this point. And people who are, are bold enough to stick with me this long, um, hopefully I'll be able to get your guys' your guys questions. Um, yeah, I've already got a bunch. So I'll get those as soon as I can. But let's finish Acts, okay? That's my goal. That's my main goal today. I didn't want to separate this teaching, even though it's long, because how many people will watch the first one and not the second one? And then they won't get the full teaching. Um, so in, in, in Acts chapter 16, Timothy, he's... He's circumcised. After all this stuff that I just told you, Timothy gets circumcised. Why is he circumcised? Personally, I think God is giving us the brilliant balance of both truths about the Jews and the Gentiles and how they can meet in fellowship together and make um, allowances for each other's conscience, which we'll get more into when we get into the letters of Paul. Uh, but here in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So he has a Jewish mom and a non-Jewish dad. That's interesting, right? So he's never been circumcised, and he's not apparently following the, the law of Moses, but he's, he's a believer now. He follows Jesus. And Paul, he wants to take Timothy with him on missions trips. And so, verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him. Paul did it. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were, they were delivering the decrees by which, uh, the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. This is a really interesting passage. It balances everything. They're literally, Paul's got, I want Timothy with me while I deliver the decree that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. But Timothy, I'm going to make you get circumcised. Why? Well, the answer is here because Timothy had a Jewish mother. He had a Jewish mother. So are we saying Jews have to keep observing the law, Gentiles don't? No, it's not quite that cut and dry, actually. That's, it's not the case. I think the answer is in 1 Corinthians 9. So even though I'm, not, I'm trying not to do the, um, the teachings of the epistles yet, but I've got to go here because it's so applicable to why Timothy got circumcised. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. That's what Timothy's doing. Timothy, you got a Jewish mother. They're not going to listen to you, man. They're going to think something about you that's not true. Get circumcised. You need to outreach to these people. Verse 21, those who are, to those who are without law, that would be the Greeks, as without law, though not being without law of God under the law, but under the law of Christ. He speaks of the law of Christ elsewhere and what that means and all that. Um, so that I might win those who are without law. Do you see he, he's, he's, uh, he's having Timothy get circumcised because it's not like an issue of abolishment of the law. It's an issue of the fulfillment of the law. That's the idea. That's the idea. Timothy didn't get circumcised because 
um, uh, he was Jewish. That wasn't the reason. Um, or it probably would have happened long before the journey. Like when he first came to, to Jesus, to Messiah, he would have, dude, get circumcised. Rather, he's like, Timothy, you're useful for ministry. You're like ready to serve the Lord in ministry. He got circumcised because he was going to interact with Jewish people who would have a problem with the fact that he wasn't. And he did have Jewish ancestry. So it wasn't like he was yoking himself to something uh, in the sense of the Acts 15 decree. So I hope that that helps. We, we need a balanced and thoughtful view of these things to realize that we have two really different groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, being brought together in Christ, not under the law together in Christ, but in the fulfillment of it in Christ. Um, it's kind of a big deal. Now, the rest of the book of Acts, it just continues with this stuff in mind. So, yep, Gentiles, when they get saved, they just believe they turn to God. They're never taught to observe the Torah in its, in, in, or said that they're under the law as its entirety. Um, the Jews, they're never asked to stop observing the law. Never. And the two groups are meant to fellowship and be united by Jesus, not by the law. In Acts 18, 13, I'll skip ahead because, again, there's just not as much relevant stuff because the issue's been dealt with, right? It's been handled now. Um, so a couple random verses. In Acts 18, 13, um, Paul is accused of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. Um, but again, we're just getting accusations. See, Paul's teaching the fulfillment of the law. Some people think, oh, you mean abolishment? And he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. You know, just like with Jesus, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Um, so this, this isn't explained in this passage. It could mean several different things or it could just be a lie about him. Um, in Acts uh, 8, 18, 13, and then 18, 18, same kind of situation. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. So Paul, years later, he's keeping a vow, which is probably the Nazarite vow. Paul seems to be doing something that's in the law that's peculiar to like the Jewish law. I don't really have a problem with that. I think it's okay. It doesn't mean he teaches everyone to obey the law of Moses. In fact, we have clear teaching already in Acts that he doesn't. Um, Besides, it's clear from 1 Corinthians 9 that sometimes Paul behaved as under the law and sometimes he didn't. So I think we will get into that more in next week's video, but that's how I would interpret Acts 18.18. 18. Another uh, possibly relevant passage is in Acts 20 verse 16. Uh, Paul is in a hurry to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Um, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He really wants to be in in you know Jerusalem for Pentecost so he seems to be observing the feast days but this kind of cuts both ways it's true that he seems to be going you know for the feast of Pentecost but based on the travel descriptions he had missed Passover he didn't seem to make Passover that priority um and he also describes why he's going now he describes himself as going uh, I go bound by the spirit I'm on my way to Jerusalem and so he has there's like a a, a spiritual yearning he has from the Holy Spirit, he's got to go. He's got to go to Jerusalem. So it's not just about the feast days. There's something else going on. Um, just, I'm just reading the passage, right? Um, then in, uh, at the end of verse 24, he talks about why he comes. Uh, he wants to finish his course so that the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God, he wants to, he wants to go to preach. Right? At Pentecost, Jews from all over are gathering and he wants access to them to preach the gospel to them. That's part of his big reason for going. But I note something really important. And this is important for those in the Hebrew roots movement. Paul is like, bye guys, I'm going to Jerusalem so I can be there for Pentecost. Why aren't the Gentiles flooding to Jerusalem if they're being taught the law of Moses? This is years and years into the church, into them being saved. Why aren't they all going there? In fact, it gets actually more extreme because in uh, verse 27 of, um, 
or do I want to look at verse 17 first? Did I already look at that? Ah, uh, yeah, verse 17, there it is. Uh, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, those who know Acts know that Paul does this like farewell address to the Ephesian elders, the elders in Ephesus. Um, now he's on his way to Jerusalem for Pentecost in this passage. He doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus. He's sailing. He goes to Miletus and then he's going to go straight over to, to um, Jerusalem as quick as he can anyway. So he says, hey, hey, Ephesian elders, meet me in Miletus. I have some things I have to tell you. Here's a question. Elders in the church, in the early church in Ephesus, why are they not just meeting him at Pentecost at Jerusalem? Because they weren't going. Paul was going, but the church as a whole, the Gentile church was not all flooding to Jerusalem for the feast. That's just the context of Acts. It seems to be the case. Um, then in verse 27, if you think, well, he, hadn't, he just hadn't told them yet. Well, he was three years he was with them in Ephesus. Why didn't he tell them about the feasts? Um, but in verse 27, he then says, I did not shrink from declaring you the whole purpose of God. And so he's given them the whole counsel of God, some translations have it. So obviously, if, if there was something about going to the feasts in discipling Christians who were, not, who have, were non-Jews who became uh, followers of Jesus, we would expect to see them doing this in the book of Acts, but they're not doing it. Okay, in Acts 21, there's a new controversy that comes up, and this is like the, um, the other side of the coin for us. This helps us to not, you know, on one side, you could lapse into this sort of um, obsession with the law, where you're, you're, you're even persecuting potentially people who are not following the law. On the other side, you can fall into this sort of idea of the abolishment of the law, where you're persecuting those who are following it. And so the, the book of Acts is saving us from both of these things. So here, Acts 21. Remember, Acts 15 was about Gentiles obeying the law. They don't have to. Acts 21 is, is to put it in a slightly confusing way, is about how you don't tell Jews not to obey the law. That's Acts 21. So in Acts 21, verse 17, Paul, he comes to Jerusalem and it says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are zealous for the law. So there's Jews zealous for the law who are following Jesus, who are zealous for the law at the same time. They're Jews, though, not Gentiles. That's important for us to recognize. Um, and they think something really bad about Paul. Verse 21, they've been told about you. It's just what they're told that you're teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So there's, there's a rumor about Paul. You know, he is definitely teaching Gentiles don't have to obey the law. In fact, that's what the apostles are teaching. But the rumor is that he's also teaching Jews to abandon the law, and he doesn't seem to do that. Verse 22, what's the solution? What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this. Do this that we tell you. Here's our request. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to these things, to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Now, it's more complicated than that. The simple thing is, oh yeah, Paul keeps the law, but he also sees it as fulfilled in Christ. And so he's never, he's never outside of the law in a sense because he's in Christ. And it gets complicated, right? Because it's fulfillment theology. But concerning Gentiles, 
In case you're thinking, oh, so Paul's going to teach the law. No. Let's find the balance. Verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, reminding us of Acts 15, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. So Paul does this. He, he does this thing. And, um, and then he gets in trouble anyways, because that's the nature of ministry. <laughs> he gets in trouble anyway. Um, but the, there's some points we get from this. One, the Jews may happily continue in obedience, though they must be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? The, ex, the additions and rabbinical additions to the, to the law. Um, the Gentiles still are not asked to obey the law, just those four commands, and those were given partially for their purification, sanctification, partially for fellowship. And three, Jews in Jerusalem, years and years and years later, were still obeying the law, and there was nothing wrong with it. All right, two more verses, then I'm going to summarize and go to your guys' questions. Thanks for hanging in with me. I know this is like an abnormally long uh, thing. I just took on the whole book of Acts, which maybe was not wise, but hopefully you're finding it fruitful and beneficial. Acts 25.8. While Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So here's a quote where Paul's defending himself and he's like, I've never offended the law. Um, and I would say that's true if you understand the fulfillment of the law as Paul does, as Jesus does, as the New Testament teaches it. Um, he hasn't offended the law, yet he could say he became as, as though he had no law to those who were not under the law, yet not without law before God because he has the law of Christ. It's, it's, com it's complicated, but it still allows him to say this. Um, and then in 28 verse 17, one more verse. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought before me. That is not the verse I wanted. Oh, 28. 28 verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as the prisoner, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of Romans. So he hasn't done anything against the customs of our fathers. Yet we have to take this in context of his fulfillment theology, of him um, walking you know, to the Jews as a Jew, to the Gentiles as a Gentile, and all that good stuff. So um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions. Let me summarize, though. Let me summarize. I almost forgot. I have to summarize. Those who already obeyed the law before they came to Christ generally continued to do so after coming to Christ, and they were never told to stop. Not as far as I can tell. Not in the book of Acts. People who did not obey the law before they came to Christ... When they did come to Jesus, they continued to not follow the law, yet they did have their lives changed and they did have sanctification going on. Obedience to the law is not required for salvation. There's another important point. Nor are we asked to do it for sanctification. In fact, it's specifically not required. We get this from Acts 10, Acts 11, and Acts 15, and from constant examples throughout the book of Acts. Constant examples. Finally, it's complicated. The question is not, was the, was the law abolished or not abolished? That's not the question. The question is, what does it mean that it has been fulfilled, right? Because it's not been abolished, but what does it mean that it's been fulfilled? And we will get into more questions next week. Right now, I'll go to your guys' Q&A, and I'll just mention um, real quick, if you guys love this ministry and you like what I'm trying to do here, help people think biblically about everything and tackle what I consider to be really important issues that maybe aren't being addressed in great detail online, um, then you could go to the link below and you could offer some support. I don't, I need most of the people who, you know, participate and watch this ministry. You don't need to donate and I don't want you to, but for that rare person who's like, man, I really believe in this. And I think, you know, maybe God's calling me to help. Um, then I really do appreciate your partnering with me. You make it possible for me to continue because all the content I produce is free. So, um, and I want to keep it that way, uh, by God's grace. 
So Kaylin Van Conant has a question. Uh, for Mike, how do we reach those who are so heavily involved with the Hebrew roots, they reject all other teachings? Uh, Kaylin, I'm not sure exactly the best strategies for that. I mean, there's the general principles of speak the truth in love, uh, continue to pursue them, try not to be defensive. I would say try to handle one issue at a time, target really important issues, not every issue in the world. Um, I, I think that... Um, uh, you know, sharing these videos with them might help. I'm addressing their exact teachings, I think. So maybe that would help. Um, maybe sit down with them and do a Bible study on the, on Acts chapter 15 and then take them to Acts 13 first and show them how long these people were following Jesus and how they had real discipleship with Paul um, for a year and then a lot more time uh, before this council had happened. And like, be ready with the questions. I think maybe Bible studies are the best way to do it. Um Prayer Warriors Brother Felix says, what do you guys say about Gentiles and Sabbath or Sunday worship? Um, I think that the day you worship uh, doesn't matter. I'll get into that in greater detail. Um, I don't think the Sabbath has changed from Saturday to Sunday. I think that's odd and I don't, I don't follow that. But I will get into that in greater detail in future videos. My short answer is um, Gentiles. Worship whatever day you want, every day, any day. Um, just make sure you're worshiping. <laughs> um, Adam Tippett says, is Mike aware of theonomy? which also teaches that we must follow certain aspects of the law as well. I'm not, I'm not well aware of it. Theonomy, um, not well enough to comment on it, Adam. Sorry. Uh, prayer warriors, brother Felix says also, what, what do you brothers or sisters say about Gentiles? Oh, it's the same question about the Sabbath here. Um, this is something I go back and forth with. Okay. All right. So I will answer that in greater detail in the future. Uh, Deshaun Jeffries says, you said the Jews, to the Jews, he was preached as Christ, and to the Gentiles, he was preached as Lord. Can you explain the difference? Well, it's subtle, um, and, and in one case, to the Gentiles, he specifically called Christ, and they do talk about fulfillment, but Messiah, the, type, the title Christ, Messiah, has all these heavy prophetic connotations in the Old Testament. So to the Jew who knows the scriptures, I wanted to tap into what they know and use that to lead them to Christ. To the Gentile who doesn't know as much about the scriptures, it's harder to show them fulfillment of prophecy because they don't already know those things. So they, they talked more about the death and resurrection of Christ, but I say more, not exclusively. They also talked about prophecy. So it was both. Um, but you will notice the phrase, sometimes when they go to the Gentiles, it's they preach to them the Lord Jesus. And um, when to the Jews, they preached that Jesus was the Christ. Um, here, sorry. I still had it on the logo screen. We're there all day today. Um, uh, Hagger Vids says, if we are still to still apply most of the Ten Commandments today, why not the Sabbath? Is it not required, but maybe expected? Um, I, I don't think that we're required to apply most of the Ten Commandments by virtue of them being part of the Ten Commandments. I think we're not under the law, but that doesn't mean I'm without law before God. And we'll get more into that in the future. But I would say we're not selectively picking random pieces of the Old Testament law to apply. We're saying there's a fulfillment thing that's happened. And it's the heart of God that I want to follow. And I, I see some of those truths throughout the law, right? But um, but we're not under the law, including the Ten Commandments. Doesn't mean it's okay to murder. It just means that it's not because it's part of the Ten Commandments that I don't um, put it that way. Hopefully people don't misunderstand me there. Emmanuel says, do tithes fall under the law and don't need to be given? Do we give as we choose instead? Um, yes. <laughs> Short answer. Yes. Um, tithe, the word means 10%, and it went to the Levites and uh, to the temple, and there was actually different giving. I don't think that we're um, required to do that, but we are required to give, just not to tithe. So like you said, do we give as we choose? Yes, you choose you between you and the Lord, 
give. We are, we are given instructions about helping the poor, helping the needy, remembering our pers persecuted brethren, and also um, helping uh, support those who minister to us spiritually, like your local congregational elders that are blessing and ministering to you, especially those who labor in doctrine, the ones that are spending all their time studying and researching, and um, they can't do that well and have a full-time job at the same time. So you want to help enable them to do that ministry. Chris Goodman says, uh, Mike, isn't uh, Revelation 21 the end of the Mosaic law? Um, oh, because it's a new heavens and new earth? Um, perhaps, you know, I, I don't know if I've really thought about that question, so I don't want to just casually answer. There's definitely the new, there's a transition and a transformation that happens and the world is unlike it ever was before. Um, I don't know if I would use the phrase end of the law, but uh, anyway, interesting question. I, I'd like to give that some thought and ponder on it for a while. Uh, Jeffrey Smith says, uh, will you do a video explaining the difference between HRM and the Messianic movement? Um, Jeffrey, I'm not entirely confident I can tell you the difference between HRM and the Messianic and Messianic Judaism, um, except there's one major difference, which is this. The Hebrew Roots movement is almost entirely non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who are taking on the law of Moses, whereas the Mess Messianic Judaism I've always seen as um, Jews who believe in Jesus, that they're, that he's the Messiah. So they're, they're Jews like by, by nature, you know? So I think that would be, that's probably is the difference. I guess I probably should put it that way. Uh, Pisces renewed says, I know this seems silly, but my seven-year-old daughter really wants to ask Mike what color his eyes are. Sorry. I promised I'd ask. <laughs> my eyes are, are bloodshot and hazel. <laughs> sometimes they're green. Sometimes they're a little more blue. Tell your daughter. I said, hi. And, um, and there you go. They're, they're, they're hazel. Um, uh, let's see. Courtney Brad says, what is the difference between Gentile Jew and Goyim? Um, good question, Courtney. Um, uh, Jew by the new Testament time is talking not just about the people of Judah, but about, I think the, the descendants of Abraham, Israel, you know, these, these people and in a general sense, they're not being differentiated that carefully. Um, Gentile would be not Jew. Goyim is a Hebrew word and it refers to nations and it's used in different ways in the Old Testament and it'd be a good study is to like, you know, search the word and look at it in each context and see how it's used in different ways. Um, I hope that helps somewhat. So I hope that this guys, I hope this has been fruitful for you. It has been really rewarding to go through Acts because there is an actual flow of thought. There is an actual revelation progressively about the Gentiles and the law and all this. And it turns out to be much more balanced than most of us are and meant to incur and encourage fellowship and unity amongst Jew and Gentile alike, right? That we might love each other and be one in Christ, um, regardless of the Old Testament law. So I, uh, I hope this has been a blessing to you. I'll, I'll continue next week. Uh, we'll start getting into Paul the Apostle. Don't know how much I'll cover. I don't really want to do this long of a video every time. So we'll see if I break that up or not. And um, yeah, Lord bless you guys. Uh, appreciate your prayers for this ministry as I just continue stepping out. I'm, I'm like full time with this online ministry now, which allows me to tackle huge, huge subjects. And it's been a lot of time prepping them, which is exciting. Uh, all right, Lord bless you. Mm -hmm.